Welcome, Brad Snyder, to Democracy Nerd. I am Jeff Smith. We have known each other in some measure for a long time, and that's probably worth touching base as well. Uh, it's, uh, it is it is June, and by that, I don't just mean dads and grads. I don't just mean sports, even though we are right now recording in the thick of the NBA Finals. Uh, and to any Boston sports fan listening, I'm not that sorry that you're not in the <laughs> in the NBA Finals. It, it actually, I was told to say sorry, and I'm like, and I can't. I can't do it. We got to be honest some of the time. Uh, But it does mean it's Supreme Court decision time. Uh, The last chance that we had, uh, we spoke, we got a little bit into this. Previously on these, in these series of interviews, we had Michael Waldman, uh, the head of the Brennan Center, on his new book about the new decisions uh, released in June of last year. Uh, and in this past month, of course, already ruled that the Environmental Protection Agency can't actually protect the environment uh, vis-a-vis wetlands, or at least is severely uh, limited its abilities to do that. So we thought we might uh, get into that a little bit, but it's at least a welcome, not welcome, it is a, an easy, it is an almost lazy reminder, or at best an important reminder of what we're here to talk about. We're joined by Brad Snyder, law professor at Georgetown University, author of the recent book, Democratic Justice, Felix Frankfurt of the Supreme Court and the Making of Liberal Establishment. Hello, Brad, and welcome to Democracy Nerd. Jeff, I am so psyched to be here and talk with you about the Supreme Court, particularly on this day, where it's like a rare day where I'm actually surprisingly happy about a Supreme Court decision um, where the Supreme Court um, today has has struck down an Alabama redistricting plan um, as um, you know, basically diluting the votes of minority voters five to four. And, you know, it's just for so long, the Supreme Court has played this kind of anti-democratic role in our society. And that's really what my book's about. It's about a guy named Felix Frankfurter, a justice on the Supreme Court, who was supposed to be this liberal savior when he was appointed by um, Franklin Roosevelt in 1939. And his, um, his, Colleagues on the Warren Court thought that he was this liberal lawyer who turned into a conservative justice. My book says that's not true at all. What Frankfurter understood was that the Supreme Court is an inherently conservative institution and that we should not rely on the Supreme Court to solve all of our problems. We should rely on things like the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And, you know, his faith was in Congress and the president and not the court. And, and I think Frankfurter, by many measures, has been vindicated, right? He told his liberal colleagues, we're not going to have a majority forever. And we ha- there hasn't been a liberal majority on the Supreme Court of the United States since Earl Warren retired in 1969, before you or I were born, right? So, you know, I think Frankfurter's prophecies come true. And his protege, Alexander Bickle, a famous law professor at Yale, you know, said that, that judicial review is anti-democratic and a and a deviant institution in American democracy. And and by by large measure, that's true. Right. And that's truer today than it's been almost ever. So today is kind of the anomaly day or the we upside down day where the Supreme Court actually does something to promote democracy, right? And, and plays, you know, a democracy enhancing role um, rather than a, an anti-democratic one. Um, but it's basically the exception that sort of proves the rule. You know, the fact that the New York Times is going crazy over today's decision, this is what the Supreme Court should be doing, but it doesn't. So let's let's talk about the decision that just came out. And then I want to get into the idea of the Supreme Court as a conservative 
institution. And I, I mean, sort of small C conservative institution and as well as now in, in modern times, a capital C conservative right. institution. But yeah, but, but walk people through or give people the uh, update on what just happened. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't, haven't read the whole decision. I've just read the media accounts, I have to say. And and um, basically what happened was is um, a, a court ruled, um, a lower court of three judges ruled that um, Alabama's black citizens had all been basically cracked and packed, um, which in voting rights terms means they'd all been kind of shoved um, into one district, right? One congressional district to dilute their power um, in the state. And then at the very least, there should be one other district that is majority black um, so they can be represented um, in the United States Congress rather than all sort of cracked and then packed into a single district um, where um, it, it, it's really diluting their representation in Congress, right? And gerrymandering is a problem for both political parties, but racial gerrymandering is something that's been going on um, since Felix Frankfurter has been on the court. And the Supreme Court ruled five to four um, with Brett Kavanaugh and John Roberts joining the three liberal justices um, that this was basically a racial gerrymander and, and that, that they have to go back to the drawing board and create. Um, and, and, and I think to create a second black majority district I mean, it was measured, right? Because Kavanaugh and Roberts were measured, but um, it was not a win for the Alabama redistricting plan that put all the black residents in one kind of majority black district. Um, it was a loss um, for those folks, and it was a win for black voters in Alabama. And it and they did not do any damage to the Voting Rights Act, and people feared that they would do some damage to the Voting Rights Act, and they did not. Um, so um, that's today's decision. I think the bigger question, Jeff, is why is the court a small C conservative institution, as you put it? I think it's always been backward looking and not forward looking. You know, from your law school experience and your um, you know, experience clerking on the Ninth Circuit that the courts rely on precedent. Courts rely on history. Courts rely on tradition. Um, um, you know, just the mere fact that that most Supreme Court decisions are based on precedent past decisions. That means they're going to be backward looking and not forward looking. And judges tend to be older, right? Um, and um, and you know, those judges um tend to have a different set of worldviews than sort of a median voter might have. And so, you know, I think for those reasons, um courts um tend to be small C conservative. And Frankfurter knew that based on his um own life experiences in the political arena. And I want to, uh, two other factors occur to me, and one of them I might even be stealing from you, but the first one is it overlaps with your statement, well, they're older. It's not just they're older in age. Joe Biden is older, but it, but their time of political accountability, their time when their politics were even part of the analysis of their selection is itself a lagging, a lagging indicator. Like you can, you can think of Supreme Court justices as a lagging indicator of the politics that were happening at the moment that they were appointed or the election that happened most recently prior to when they were nominated. And that's not always a perfect guess, right? Earl Warren uh, had, ended up having different politics than maybe were, were predicted by his appointing authority. Uh, and that's been true of Justice Souter and a bunch of other justices. But nonetheless, uh, you have this sort of lagging indicator piece. Uh, and the other the other piece is that when, uh, and, and I'm trying to think, was this Waldman? I think this might have been Waldman. When the Supreme Court ends up uh, wielding significant power, 
when they end up really diverting from uh, both precedent and or public opinion and or sort of the arc of the moral universe, it has seemed to, in important times, yielded significant voter backlash. And I don't mean like people are grumpy and like write mean letters. I mean that it can build movements that end up trying to turn the tide of the entirety of American politics. And, and everybody in this phone call would be in favor of Brown versus Board of Education. And we know that that helped birth even the fundamentalist homeschooling movement, right? Helped birth the uh, that much of the right-wing economic movement that was shaded in economics, but was not very well-disguised racism even then. Uh, that the uh, that Roe versus Wade, nobody on this call would wish that opinion hadn't been decided. And we know that at the dawn of that opinion was the, or at the, at the announcement of that opinion was the dawn of much of what we see as the conservative right wing right now. And if you go back, Plessy versus Ferguson also had its own, uh, its own backlash. So that's the other piece. Is it is it about who the justices are, right? Is it this idea that they're lagging indicators? Uh, or is it also something about the American people aren't ready for typically, and I don't mean like right now at this moment, I mean kind of ever, that human beings generally aren't that excited about an unelected board uh, making monstrous decisions that are significantly out of step with where with voter where voters might be, or even if not significantly out of step, are hugely significant decisions and might be a little bit out of step. Those are all great points. Let me just take a couple of them, right? And then we can keep unpacking them because there's so much um, in there. You know, the lagging indicator point is great, whether it's yours or Michael Wald, Waldman. No, that right? one's like, definitely you know, mine. The second one might be his. Sam Alito wrote, you know, the opinion in Dobbs overturning Roe versus Wade, but he was appointed by George W. Bush, right? Three presidents ago. He is um, the lagging indicator. And you know, we know how controversial after, you know, we um, graduated from law school, the 2000 election was that got Bush in there in the first instance, right? Of course, he got reelected um, and then Alito got nominated. But still, there's the lagging indicator right there. Um, you know, and, and the response to Alex Bickle at the court is counter majoritarian is that, well, the court usually follows public opinion. Right. Barry Friedman um, wrote that book called The Will of the People. Um, but that's no longer true. Right. The court is way out of step um, with public opinion. Um, but I think some of I think the Republican Party likes it that way. Right. Because the Republican Party is out of step with with public opinion. Right. The Republican Party has become a minority party. And, and the but the Democrats have their own issues. Um, the Democrats for a long time, their strategy was, um, what does Justice Kennedy think, right? And so when they had a problem, they say, oh, well, how can we convince Anthony Kennedy, who was, you know, the, the median, you know, that swing voter um, on the court during the early Roberts court? Well, that's not a strategy, that's a tactic, right? It's not even a constitutional theory. And as I kept telling my law students, that's a bad tactic, right? You know, and, and while the right's building up these theories about textualism and originalism. The Democrats are saying, well, how do we convince Justice Kennedy? Well, that's an evanescent, you know, tactic. That's not going to work long term. And so now Justice Kennedy isn't the swing voter on the court. Um, it's Brett Kavanaugh and and it's really Kavanaugh's court, right? Um, Kavanaugh, what, what Kavanaugh says really goes now. And, and the, the question is, Democrats need to rethink their entire constitutional strategy. And if you'll indulge me, I I'll tell you what I've been telling my classes. I think that strategy should be right. Please. Which is so. Um, so I want to pause right here. Yeah, uh, because uh, j just 
just to make sure that everybody's sort of, because this is a big deal. It sounds to me, I, I'm very interested in this part. I just, we don't have fanfare. I can give an air horn. Uh, the, uh, we don't have, but figuring out what a, uh, what a sensible, what at least, use your term, a democratic uh, court strategy ought to be. That's fascinating. All right. That's my version of, of mumbled fanfare. All right, go ahead. So I, I just think the left um, buys into this idea that the Supreme Court has the last word on the Constitution. Okay, it buys into that idea from a myth about a case from 1803 by John Marshall called Marbury versus Madison that didn't say that, right? The case didn't say that, but the Warren Court bought into that idea. Justice Brennan um, endorsed that idea and really most prominently in Baker versus Carr in 1962 when he called the Supreme Court, quote, the ultimate constitutional interpreter. The Supreme Court does not have the last word on the Constitution. They are not the ultimate constitutional interpreter. All three branches have co-equal roles in interpreting the Constitution. And what the Democrats should be doing is turning to those co-equal branches and encouraging our elected officials to assert their roles as constitutional interpreters in, in a large varieties of ways, whether it's executive orders, whether it's legislation, but pushing back on the Supreme Court's interpretations of the Constitution, particularly when it comes to the 14th Amendment. The, the you know, Justice Kennedy, that hero of liberals, he eviscerated Congress's role in enforcing the 14th Amendment in a case called City of Bernie versus Flores um, in the late 90s. But that is that's a the 14th Amendment, in Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, Congress has a textual right to enforce the 14th Amendment. It just hasn't used it, Jeff. And these, these other branches, Congress and the president, need to play their co-equal roles in the 14th in, in forcing the 14th Amendment, just as Lyndon Johnson did, um, just as um that that Congress did with Everett Dirksen did, right? You know, just as 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 our our past elected officials have, and not waited for the Supreme Court to solve all of our constitutional problems in the way that we would like. All right, how give some examples of how a president or how a Congress would uh, reassert their role in interpreting the Constitution, and as distinct from merely disregarding it or disregarding the Supreme Court's view, even though they might disregard the Supreme Court's view. What might that look like? Give some examples. I'll give you an example. I mean, I think the text is on the side of liberals. Okay, the text of the 14th Amendment is on the side of liberals. Uh, an example would be a national abortion rights law that Congress passes not under its power to regulate interstate commerce, but its power to enforce the 14th Amendment. And that would say, look, we are making an interpretation as as um, co-equal constitutional interpreters that we believe that there is a, a, a right for women to choose um, whether or not to have a child. Um, and, and so we're going to use our powers under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment to pass such a law. So that would be one. Okay, right? so let's, I wanna, let's stick with it. Let's stick with that. So let's say, okay. let's say they do that. And that, and that means there's language sort of language in the legislation that they pass that sort of says hey any court reviewing this understand that we are interpreting the constitution here and we're just as powerful as you and 
and then and we think that impacts what a court says or then if the court disagrees with that we'd say well we're doing it anyway and we're asking the executive branch we're asking states to continue to follow or, or ask the yeah I, I guess we'll be asking the executive branch asking the the enforcement arm to enforce the law even though the supreme court says otherwise keep taking that steps down about how that no I'll, I'll keep taking it down the road let's say they pass my abortion rights law right mm -hmm. that after um you know up to um the third trimester any woman in the country has a right to an abortion and after that the states can regulate it right approximately um the way that that, that roe versus wade or at least planned parenthood versus casey laid it out let's say the court strikes that new law je down jeff well then the next a move by um, Congress and the president could be, we're going to take away the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction to hear any cases involving abortion rights. Congress has the power to decide which cases the Supreme Court of the United States hears. It's done it in the past. Um, in the Bush administration, they tried to take away um, the Supreme Court's right to hear cases involving detainees, right? It can be done, right? So it, it So that's a way of signaling to the Supreme Court, hey, we don't like the way you're interpreting abortion rights, so we're going to take away that right, and we're going to lodge it in instead the D.C. Circuit as the court of last resort um, instead of you guys. That's what happened um, in, D in the detainee cases, and I, I think the left is perfectly capable of that, uh, you know, and saying, you know, we don't like your constitutional interpretation, and, and particularly as it comes to Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, where the text says we have a co-equal role in enforcing it. So, so let's say that's the. Let's go back a. Let's go back a step, and the. Um, and now we are imagining we're we're imagining this world where Congress is a more is more majoritarian than the Supreme Court, and I think at this moment, that's it's hard to say otherwise. Uh, what. Well, if we think about the most small d democratic institutions, how would you rank them? I think you'd rank them number one, the state house, number two, the state, the, the U.S. House, number two, the U.S. Senate, number three, the Supreme Court. Uh, if I'm wrong about my ranking, tell me. Uh, but if I have it right, then make the case for why you'd say that the U.S. Senate that gives, I don't know, 28, uh, 28 uh, 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 Senate seats for states that amount to, you know, fewer voters than the state of Texas or Florida, uh, not to say nothing of California, uh, that, that we in fact have a, a majoritarian path relying on Congress. Well, you're totally right. This is Sandy Levinson of the University of Texas's point that we have an undemocratic constitution that the Senate, um, by by apportioning two senators per state, um, is inherently undemocratic. But I just think um, if Democrats run on this issue of abortion rights, uh, that's a winner, right? Yeah. That even with the deck stacked against, right, um, you know, the majority in the Senate, I, I'm with your rankings. I I don't know where I would put the presidency because of the electoral college. Right. I think I'd put the presidency maybe um, behind the House, um, but in front of the Senate um, in terms of being majoritarian. Um, but 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 still, even with the Electoral College, even with gerrymandering in the House, even with two senators per state that gives um, the population of New York state the same amount of senators as, say, the 
the the people of Wyoming, right? Which is completely crazy, right? Um, but even with all those problems that are inherent in our system, I st when when the president and the Congress fail to exercise their Fourteenth Amendment powers, right? It's like when muscles that become atrophied, Jeff, and for and this has been going on for a really long time. It's I'm not just going to blame it all on William Brennan, right? When the Congress and and these guys are heroes when they passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Kennedy Justice Department made a huge mistake. They said, we're going to pass this under the Commerce Clause um, because we know we can get a 9 nothing decision if we pass this law under the Commerce Clause. And, and a great constitutional law professor at Stanford named Gerald Gunther says, you guys are screwing up here. You, this is not about commerce or regulating interstate commerce. This is about discrimination. You should be using Congress's power under the 14th Amendment. And they didn't because they were worried about overruling some 19th century racist Supreme Court decisions um, around the time of Plessy versus Ferguson um, uh, that that maybe stood in their way a little bit, or they were worried about not getting an unanimous court. And, and I think what's happened is the Congress, because they've so frequently exercised their 14th Amendment powers, those are like atrophied muscles, you know, and Congress has to build those muscles back up again by using them and by trying to pass legislation um, under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment to protect our rights as equal citizens. When you said you were going to go, you wanted to suggest or recommend the Democratic, uh, big D, I, I'm going to focus a lot on the capitalization of the first word, uh, on, on big D Democratic strategy for approaching the court. Uh, I thought I might also hear or might instead hear one of two things. Uh, and and I still want to understand better the thing that you said, sort of this idea of how other branches of government can assert their, and Daniel Webster, right, used to argue about the Constitution, right? There used to be t conversations in Congress about how to interpret the Constitution. It wasn't like, oh, let's hand that over to legislative council and they'll tell us if it's constitutional or not. They thought that part of their duty as elected representatives was in fact to interpret the constitution and to and to manifest that into law. Uh, I thought I was going to hear, so I do want to get more into that, but I thought I was going to hear two other things, or I thought there's a chance we might hear two other things, or at least we hear a lot two other things. One, uh, win more, uh, win the presidency, win the U.S. Senate, prioritize more highly the courts that that since Brown versus Board of Education and since Roe versus Wade, the uh, I, I would say most meager. I would say the 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 most even the most venal, the, the the certainly the most racist and the most sexist elements of our political power in our country have built power and trained their voters to care deeply about the composition of the court. So even if they don't love who the president is, even if they have, I mean, and that enables them to give standing ovations to Donald Trump as evangelical Christians in full view of how this person has lived his life, what his worldview appears to be, what his sense of morality would be defined by even them. And they say, hey, he got us justices. So that's great. So they've trained their voters that way. Meanwhile, the uh, outside, you know, maybe Georgetown Law School, the number of, of Democratic voters who would list the Supreme Court as one of the two or three most important reasons they would cast their ballot, it's a much smaller number. So I thought I might have heard that. Uh, as a as a strategy. Second thing that we hear a lot about is some version of term limits on justices or uh, increasing, you know, going from nine to twelve or nine to thirteen or nine to some other number. Uh, 
and say, and with the argument, that's not court packing. The court's already been packed. All we're trying to do is make it more democratic. Uh, where do you think, and maybe there's others that I'm missing. Where do you think those lie in a strategy of, uh, it's sort of a democratic strategy around the Supreme Court? Like also important, not as important, overstated, flatly wrong. Say something. Yeah, so those are great. So I want to take all of them. First of all, I think the Democratic Party's ideas appeal to the majority of the Amer American people. Like, I feel like abortion rights is a winning issue yeah. for, for, for the Democratic Party long term, right? And I, and I feel like um, equal citizenship for LGBTQ people and equal citizenship for all of us regardless of race and color, are winning issues long term. So I'd rather run on the issues than run against the court, right? But but that's to say it ha that has been effective in the past. I'll give you two presidents where that's been real effective. Theodore Roosevelt, when he made his third party run for the presidency, he ran against the court in 1912, right, as anti-labor and pro-business. But more, and he almost won. Uh, more effective was FDR, right? In 36, Right. FDR really ran against the Supreme Court of the United States that was striking down all of his New Deal programs. Um, and, you know, he won in a landslide in 36. Right. He said he challenged the horse, the, the, um, the, the Supreme Court's horse and buggy view of the Constitution. Right. Those are his words. And, and, and then won in a landslide. So I think it's possible. Right. To, to run on the court. But I just I think you're right, Jeff, that. Republican voters just care more about the court institutionally. I think they have more faith in that institution than the Democratic institutions who do their bidding, in part because their ideas have no traction in, in, in majoritarian politics, right? So they no, see even, the court as, their, only, yeah, uh, as their only outlet, right? I mean, as far as increasing the size of the court goes, let's take let, let's stick with let's stick with what you just said for a moment. So yeah. first of all, agreement, like the uh, George Will. Before I think it was before the Kavanaugh appointment, uh, it was it was five six seven years ago. Uh, did an interview where he was explicitly calling for, and I think his book actually said it. I just didn't read his book. Uh, explicitly calling for, essentially renewal of a Lochner era in in the federal court system. Right, it's basically making your point that we don't trust majoritarian institutions. We think that the will of the people will do things like pass overweening environmental protections, pass overweening middle, middle class protections. We need uh, a set of, of mostly dudes in robes saying, no, 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 we're going to limit people's rights and we're going to limit the power of democratic institutions. Uh, so yes to that. I, I don't go though so far as to say, therefore, let's not focus on the court. And But I, even though I agree with everything I heard you say, because I'd put it this way, I think one of the advantages of not running against the court, but working to train one's movement, what, build it as a precept of the movement. Training sounds too uh, paternalistic, but because like, like, so much of this comes from the bottle, bottom up and the middle out. But but infusing within the movement a prioritization of the federal court system is that then the issues are always on the ballot, right? You go to a given congressional seat. And maybe that, and maybe maybe even, heck, Joe Manchin, right? Hard to say that hard as environmental activists to go out there and you know champion Joe Manchin's reelection to the U.S. Senate, right? Hard to do that on any number of issues that as a Democratic voter. 
flip it for your favorite Republican just favorite favorite Republican senator, somebody they're not that excited about, either based on their personal life, based on their voting record, whatever, just not that excited about. Nonetheless, they have a clarion call and their issues are always on the ballot. I don't mean the court being that issue, but I mean it gives them their chance to talk about abortion. It gives them their chance to talk about limiting uh, gay rights. It gives them their chance, to, if you're George Will, to talk about, hey, well, let's make sure that they don't do what F an FDR administration would do, or at least we block them when they try because we've got the courts in our pocket. So so winning on issues long term. So I guess those would be a quick responses. Feel free to push back or add to that. Yeah, I think it's an and and not an or, right? Yeah. I would run on the issues and run against the court. I, I do want to say about the Biden administration, it has prioritized judges better than the Obama administration did in terms of quantity, right? I mean, I, I you know, you could take issue with um, quality or who they're nominating, um, but certainly, so I think they're, they're really prioritizing quantity. They're also really prioritizing diversity, right? Where you had a Trump administration that was predominantly appointing white men to the bench, and then you have the Biden administration really trying to fill as many vacancies as possible on why they have the majority in the Senate. So I do think that the in the, that instance, um, the Biden administration is prioritizing the courts and is trying to signal um, to Democratic voters that the courts are important and, and that they I, I think that's one of the reasons to reelect Joe Biden. He did a great job on the court. The The irony is that he did a better job on the court better than a Harvard law educated former con law professor um, from the University of Chicago who who had other priorities and and look you can't I can't fault Obama's priorities um the 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 Affordable Care Act was the most re redistributive piece of legislation you know since the Great Society so like um you know Obama ran on that and he did it and I give him full credit but he didn't feel like he could do that and. Um, prioritize the well, maybe you asked my question which is why do you think it, it, do you think biden's advances there were because of some uh, s some of in his heart different priorities or his team realizing its greater importance given what's happened with with the dobbs decision etc uh or was it in fact because he didn't have as friendly a congress and therefore that was the that, that was a place that they could go they weren't going to pass the next version of the affordable care act I think the Democrats have realized we need to need to play hardball on the courts, too. And I think yeah. there are a lot of smart people in the Biden administration that says we need to nominate as many people as we can, as quickly as we can, and get them through the pipeline um, in, in before we lose the Senate. Right. So I yeah. think they they learned that lesson. Um, I hope they learn it long term. But can, uh, the the second part you asked me, Jeff, was as interesting as the first, which was about the idea of either court packing um, or term limits. And and I'm more in favor of the latter. I, I'm more of a term limit person. Yeah, I, I think limiting um, all federal judges prospectively to 18 or 20 year terms would be would depoliticize the federal judiciary somewhat and would lower the temperature on nomination hearings, particularly at the Supreme Court level, but even across the board, because they would become more regular and I think Congress doesn't need a constitutional amendment to do that. The Constitution says um, that judges can sit for good behavior. It doesn't say life tenure. It says good behavior. And I think it's up to Congress to define, define what good, good behavior. behavior. <laughs> define good behavior, good behavior means 18 years. <laughs> and good, good behavior means 18 to 20 years. And good behavior also means and abide by this code of ethics for that those 18 yeah. years as well. Yeah. Right. So I think the balls in Congress's court on this, um, Jeff, to about 
defining good behavior. Now, this is what I mean about Congress's co-equal role on a, as a constitutional interpreter, right? So I think term limits would be a good thing. I'm going to make a bipartisan point here. Justices on the Supreme Court are staying on the court too long, right? Ruth Bader Ginsburg stayed on the court until she died. Um, um, Chief Justice Rehnquist stayed on the court until he died of throat cancer, right? Um, we don't want justices doing that, right? Uh, the, the game now, Jeff, is to appoint justices who are in their 40s to the Supreme Court of the United States, where they have no real life experiences outside of sitting on a Court of Appeals for a couple of years before they get on the court. I think that's really bad. I, I think some of our best justices had a lot of really rich life experiences in other branches of government and in state government and, and can bring that to the bench, um, you know, on the Supreme Court. So I think term limits would do all of those things and they would, it would, and it would prevent these nomination hearings for justices from becoming circuses and kind of these zero sum game affairs if we knew that they were gonna be more frequent turnover on the bench. So let's stick with that then. Let's stick with the term limits idea for a moment. I heard another uh, proposal, another term limit proposal, which is essentially what I'm sure you've heard of too, uh, which essentially you still have lifetime appointed, uh, you still have lifetime appointed federal judges, but they rotate. Right. They they you, you you only get to be on the and and their their argument was so their textual argument was uh it's Article three, it's the judges, both the Supreme Court and the inferior, inferior courts shall hold their offices during good behavior and shall at stated times receive for their service compensation, which shall not be diminished during their continuance in office. And then and just to define office as uh, as being a federal judge, and you get to sit as the Supreme Court judge for uh you know for for 18 years or two years or six, you know, a six-month panel or whatever it is. Uh, Counter-arguments could be maybe that's no easier, right? Maybe it, it, it actually isn't more politically doable. Uh, a second counter-argument would be, yeah, but it's still, if you're still, it still politicizes the entirety of the federal court, right? If you know what you're doing is creating a jury pool for, that's going to be selected, you're going to care about every single one of those people who could end up being one of those nine or what it was, whatever number. But is that, is that a proposal you've considered and are there reasons you like no, it less? I, I've, or? I've heard that. I, I like that idea. I think it's good. You know, I think you could say every judge is a senior judge after 18 years, right? And, and so therefore, if you're a senior Supreme Court justice, that means you're welcome to sit on the lower courts of appeals or at the trial court level if you want. Um, but um, your time sitting on the Supreme Court of the United States is over after 18 years. You know, I'm okay with proposals along those lines. Um, you know, that that would be good by me. I'm certainly not trying to, um, you know, take away their salaries in any way, shape or form, right? Yeah. So I, I wouldn't want to go there. Um, but, you know, we've had senior judges or, or retired Supreme Court justices who, who've sat on 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 courts of appeals. David Souter did for a while. Um, you know, I, I'm not, I, that wouldn't bother me. The rotation idea wouldn't bother me at all, right? So I, I just think um, we don't need any more non-hearings like Merrick Garland's, or yeah. we don't need these kind of blood sport events over Supreme Court nominees. You know, um, I, I just don't think what happened during the Ka Kavanaugh hearings was good all the way around, right? Regardless yeah. of how you feel about Kavanaugh as a nominee, like that was not good for American politics. The uh, two, and I'm just no disagreement, to your uh, 
preference over term limits over composition over over um, numer over court expansion, right? Uh, it sounded to me like that was more than just preference. It sounded like it was you 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 liked another one less. You liked the idea of court expansion less. And is it? And how come? A moment ago you said, and I I don't know that I even have an extra to be clear. The but a moment ago you said, well I think there are now people in. The, within the democratic power structure who are now prioritizing the court more and then the word you use are willing to play hardball. And, and some would say, well, yeah, FDR was willing to play hardball when he realized there was a Supreme court that was abrogating the will of the people and certainly his administration over and over and over again. And he said, all right, I'm going to play hardball with the court. Uh, and maybe it's not a matter of hardball or softball, but what are your concerns about a, a push from nine to 11, nine to 12, nine to 13, nine to 102? Well, actually getting votes for it. I think um, I think yeah. people are going to be unwilling to get the votes for that. Yeah. I, I also think that nine kind of works right at the Supreme Court. You know, I think it's been there for it's I think it's what Akhil Lamar at Yale would call one of those unwritten constitutional rules. Right. We've had it since shortly after the Civil War. And, and you know, it, that's how the Supreme Court's kind of operated. And with nine justices, I just think the number just like a seven game series in basketball kind of works, Jeff, like nine on, on the Supreme Court kind of works. And, and, um, and, and I just think they're more equally effective and like more palatable ways of playing hardball. And I just, that's where I think like jurisdiction stripping is hardball, right? And it's just as an, kind of an extreme kind of measure. Um, term limiting federal judges, or at least making them go senior, right? Um, is it is a is a kind of hardball, and I think it's I think it's more palatable to the kind of voters, um, and, and it's more and it's I think it would be easier for Democrats in the House or the Senate to vote for something like jurisdiction stripping or term limits on judges um, than it would be to increase the size of the court. I just think that that's kind of a that's a tough, you know, nobody's ever really done that since um, an unelected president Andrew Johnson, right? Yeah. What was was the president of the United States, right? So um, that that's a tough that's a tough lift, right? Um, the, you know, well, the I'll give you another. Go ahead, I mean to cut you off. Third ninth Congress. No, you're good. You're good. I just I just think it's a tough lift, and I also think it kind of works, right, yeah. with nine. And I'm not sure. Um, I well, just I'll don't think you, it's going to happen. I'll give you another. When I when when you talked about or uh, the problems of the current Supreme Court, when anybody talks about it, nobody really actually says the problem is that it's too small. Right. They say the problem is a lagging indicator. The problem is it's too captured. The problem is it's too influenced by a president who might not have won an actual majority of voters because electoral college and approved by a number of senators who didn't reflect the majority of the country. Like the, the, the essence of it is a Supreme Court that is out of touch and is wielding power in bad ways, not really about its size. And, and, and if you then have a solution, which really kind of what you're doing is saying, well, this would give us our chance to appoint a few more and therefore have a temporary balancing. That's not a permanent balancing. It would still be, it would then just be more justice would be a problem in the future, right? Or like more, more slots that could suffer from the same dynamics. That's totally right. It's, you said it better than, than, than I could. Um, I also think as Democrats, uh, capital D, we've outsourced our democracy to the Supreme Court of the United States, right? This is the Justice Kennedy idea, right? When we thought DOMA was wrong, we didn't ask um, Obama to repeal DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, right? We ran to the courts and we ran to Justice Kennedy to get him to strike it down, and he did. And, and you know, 
some of that's our Democrats' own fault. I know Democrats hate when I say that, and my students um, on the left hate when I say that, but it's true, right? We thought, oh, we've got five. Let's just go solve all of our problems that way, right? Well, I think there are other ways to solve the problem. We've got two other co-equal branches of government that are co-equal to constitutional interpreters. Let's use them rather than pack the court from nine to 12. All right. I want to get back to Frankfurter and not okay. merely to walk through. We can, of course, but we won't be able to read the book, right? Sometimes we go deep into, into right. points from the right. book, but but right. if we have a chance to leap from there to modern stuff, not for the sake of it being modern, but for the sake of it being a window to discussions that are happening yeah. now. Uh, yeah. and, and, and as a teaser, because, you know, we won't be able to buy the book. Uh, it's a... Um, a number of other things. So the first thing we've been dealing with is what is the Frankfurter era and what is your expertise there? How does that inform our current understanding of the judiciary? And, and your point is essentially that the uh, that Frankfurter, who was viewed maybe as a turncoat, was actually manifesting judicial humility. And he thought the judicial humility was, in fact, not only the right thing to do morally, but the right thing to do strategically if one were trying to strengthen a sort of pro-social democracy. Right? And that's how I sort of take your point. Totally right. Wait, well, let me stop you right there. That Please. was part of it. But he saw judicial restraint, just to reformulate your idea, as a liberal constitutional theory, right? That if we left the elected branches, the states, Congress, and the Senate, and the presidency to their own devices, by and large, with one big exception, and that's race in the 14th Amendment. But except for race in the 14th Amendment, he said, if we left the elected branches alone, then, then we would have more liberal results than not. And he was thinking about things like minimum wage laws, maximum hour laws, things he fought for hard in the teens and the 20s, right? The right to unionize, Right. These were, you know, the you know, the right not to sign yellow dog contracts, forbidding unionization as conditions of employment. These were the things that Frankfurter looked worked really hard for legislatively, both at the state level and the federal level. Um, once FDR got into power and he said, look, you leave these elected branches to their own devices and they'll look out for working people. But if you let the Supreme Court just um, wield the, the Constitution like an, an anti-regulatory axe, right, that, that's just going to lead to conservative results. So judicial restraint is a liberal constitutional theory. And, and Frankfurter's, I think, what he deserves credit for, what I said he deserved credit for in the book, was he adapted the judicial restraint of his heroes, Holmes and Brandeis, neither of whom was really great on race and say, wait a minute here, it can't be judicial restraint all the way down. We have a group of people in this country who are totally disenfranchised, and that's Black people in the South, and we need to enforce their 14th Amendment rights because they're unable to, to, to voice, have a voice in our government. And so that's why Frankfurter was at the forefront of the move toward Brown versus Board of Education from the 40s on. It's why he hired the first African-American law clerk um, William, T. William T. Coleman, who graduated first in his class at Harvard Law School and became Ford's Treasury Secretary, right? So, you know, this is Frankfurter's move, right? Judicial restraint is a liberal constitutional theory, but adapting it to pr protect the rights um, of racial minorities. And Frankfurt also, of course, had Lochner in his immediate rearview mirror, 
right? It, this was not something that, like, it was even weird when, when we first heard it, certainly when I first heard in law school, like, what are we even talking about? Why do you even call it like this case? Like, it, it was not, it wasn't anywhere in my awareness, had, it had not been covered in, in high school or even college, uh, you know, social studies for as a public school kid for me. And, and, and of course, to the, to the people at law school, it was like, oh, yeah, this is everybody knows what we're talking about. For him, he definitely knew what they were talking about, right? He had, he had lived through that. And for him, uh, sort of wielding of judicial power, the most important examples during his earlier life, during his, as, at the point you make, the, the story you tell is during his life in law school, that's the freaking problem, is, is justices acting like kings. They weren't doing that to benefit Black people. They weren't doing that to benefit women. They weren't doing it because the majoritarian elements of the racist South were, were too much wielding power in the United States. They were doing it to make sure that oligarchs could stay oligarchs. They were doing it to make sure that the arc of history didn't bend anywhere. You're totally right. It was this anti-regulatory Supreme Court of the United States, Lochner versus New York, um, which struck down a maximum hour law for bakers. Um, that came down during his second year at Harvard Law School, right? That's like Bush v. Gore for you or I, Jeff, right? Which came or down Dobbs for for I would say kids for, for people, people today, right? right? Now. For Dobbs for law students today. It's it was his worldview that the Supreme Court was anti-labor and pro-business and anti any kind of regulation that might favor um, working men and women. Another big theme, of your, not just theme, heck, it's in the title of the Frankfurter legacy is not merely his legacy as a justice who votes or who writes, but as a leader, as a connector, as a, uh, as a relationship wielder, as a movement builder, as an establishment former, that he spent a significant portion of his life kind of building up, identifying his role as lifting people up, whether it was the, whether it was a treasure, the treasury official that you mentioned, whether it was, uh, who was a, a, a top law student and one of the early black, you know, do you say the very first black, uh, black graduate? So he, so Frankfurter mentored the first black Harvard law, law review editor, Charles Hamilton Houston, the second Black Harvard Harvard Law Review editor um, William Hasty, and then the third Black Harvard Law Review editor was William T. Coleman, and he hired him as a law clerk um, when he was on the court. But Jeff, you'll love this, right? Frankfurter's message: He was a professor at Harvard Law School for 25 years before he joined the court. His message to these Harvard Law students: He would have loved you, by the way. He said, "Don't go to a New York law firm. Don't go to a Washington law firm. Don't go to a, a Chicago law firm. The highest thing you can do is serve." the government is public service. And so he's he's grabbing the arms physically, literally, to these Harvard Law Review editors. He's like, don't go work at Covington and Burling in Washington. Don't go work for Cravath in New York. You know, go work um, for Justice Holmes next year as a, as a law clerk. Go work for Justice Brandeis. And then after you're done, go work in the Wilson administration or go work in, you know, the Hoover administration. He didn't matter Democratic or Republican. He wanted the best legal minds of their generations in government. And he preached that message for so long. He preached the same message to his law clerks. He had a former student or a law clerk in every presidential administration from Taft, you know, Wilson to Jimmy Carter, right? That's incredible, right? And, and, you know, that message of public service is incredible, right? He, he, had, he had scores of former students and clerks in the Kennedy administration. His best friend and former student was Dean Acheson, 
the sec Truman Secretary of State, right? Like these were his people, and it weren't just white people. It was, you know, Houston and Hasty, who was the first black federal judge in the United States, right? That's Frankfurter's former student, right? So um, it was kind of great. I mean, it wasn't for unfortunately, it weren't didn't include women because yeah. sadly Harvard Law School didn't admit women, right? Yeah. For a really, really long time. And, and Frankfurter would have been a better judge had he taught women. Sorry about that, Jeff. Um, Frankfurter would have better judge had he taught women. And and he there were a few decisions I would have liked to have had back. He famously turned RBG down for a clerkship ah. near the end of his time on the bench. A ah. Harvard Law professor came to him, Henry Hart, said, hey, you should hire this woman. She's transferred to Columbia for a third year, but she has a really good record. But I leave it up to you. And Frankfurter said no. And, and wow. he gave a bunch of phony baloney reasons why he said no what were his baloney reasons well he had had a heart attack a few years before yeah and um and henry hart had explained in the letter which i have i showed it to rbg when she was alive by the way jeff i oh, wow. I, I had an audience with her in chambers oh, wow. and i said have you ever seen this letter from henry hart she said no and uh, and she read it and you know she's she was like the the king of uncomfortable silences right she didn't say a lot of words like you or i do she just paused and she sat there and I said, well, what do you think? She said, typical white male chauvinism, uh, you know, but the reason was one of the things, and this is true. So Frankfurter just had a serious heart attack. He was in the hospital for a while. Um, and his doctor said to simplify his life at the time, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's husband, Martin had testicular cancer and they had a young child. And he said, and Frankfurter's response to heart was, I can't have a woman with a husband at home dying of cancer and a young child. I just can't have that additional stress in my life. My doctor told me to eliminate stress and that stress I don't need. And now Ginsburg's response was that such a cop out. And it was, yeah. it was even worse what he told his law clerks because I interviewed his law clerks. One of them who's still alive, the former Dean of Arizona state. He said to me, I curse too much. And the judge and the, and the clerks go, you don't curse judge. And he said, well, I work you guys too hard. And they're like, we're the least worst worked clerks at, at the court. You know, he was trying to give all these phony baloney reasons why not to hire Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And it was a huge loss for him. You know, yeah. imagine what um, what ideas she could have brought into his chambers. He could have been on the forefront of using the Equal Protection Clause to enforce women's rights. The Warren Court is notably terrible about this. You know, Justin Driver of, of Yale Law School wrote an article called the constitutional conservatism of the Warren Court and exhibit A for them is the Warren Court's rulings on women's rights. It was just terrible. Imagine if Ruth Ginsburg had been clerking on, on the 1959 term Warren Court, um, pushing to enforce the 14th Amendment to protect the rights of women. It would have been amazing. And, and impacting that whole culture, right? Impact, right, uh, just her, totally. Her, her, her relationships impacting the, the worldviews of the other clerks and the other justices. No doubt. Just as I benefited from clerking with you, Jeff, right? On the Ninth Circuit, right? It was fun, right? And you learned as much from your, your co-clerks as you did um, from your own judge and from clerks in other chambers. That's one of the beauties in being in a in a courthouse with a lot of really smart people. Um, I thought that was, you know, one of the great experiences of my yeah, life a, doing yeah, that. Likewise, likewise. And 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 to, to people listening, uh, Brad was probably the best of us, or certainly one of them. Uh, so, no. so my, um, I want to get back to this sort of establishment building. And the first, because I was going to a question that I hadn't earned yet. And my question was, why isn't that happening as much? But I could be wrong, right? 
Uh, and it also could be, oh, no, it was just because Frankfurter was kind of anomalous. Uh, and he was kind of one of one. But as a, as a law student, I wasn't getting grabbed by the arm and saying, go surf. Right. There was a little there was a little bit of still of a culture and that was a good thing to do among other students. And there were certain there were professors that would, of course, you know, been in favor. And there was absolutely the public interest law, like like wing of the public interest law kind of organization within the school. So that absolutely existed. But in terms of influential professors themselves. Right. I didn't feel and I had Larry Tribe. Right. And I didn't have a sense from from him of like, hey, don't you know, don't go take a job with Wattel. Instead, you should go to do this, right? Because you're made for, you're made for more important stuff. Uh, and, and, and it did feel that the dominant pressure was to do the most prestigious thing. The definition of the most prestigious thing was the highest paying thing and the highest paying thing sure as heck wasn't government work. So the first, do I have my, but that's again, just my experience, right? Uh, the, uh, uh, and I recognize that the experience of a white male in our era is different than the experience of a white male 50 years prior, right? It's different in some good ways. I don't necessarily mean personally beneficial, but like culturally beneficial. Uh, But before I just make that assumption, is it your sense that that kind of commitment by by a, a law professor is happening less, or is it just that he was anomalous? And, and if it, and then I'll go into, if it's less, why do we think so? But yeah, I think you see where I'm getting at. No, totally. Well, first of all, I think like Frankfurter was like a one-man federal society on the left, right? Creating these networks, right? Of public, of law, turning law students into public servants and then, and then networking with them. He was writing 15 to 20 letters a day. Today he'd be on Twitter. He'd be on Instagram, right? He'd be on podcasts, right? Like we are. Um, and, And he just created this network of of liberal government lawyers on the left. And I just think after the New Deal and maybe after the Great Society, the left got like a little complacent about maintaining these networks and the Federal Society worked to its credit starting in that those that early 80 period, um, really worked hard at creating networks. Um, and, and, the, and the left then is now kind of playing catch up with the American Constitution Society and in creating these um, networks and, and encouraging lawyers to do things other than to go to um, law firms. The other thing I'd just say, Jeff, is the world was smaller then. And it was yeah. easier for Frankfurter to pick up the phone, right? Yeah. Um, to, and ha- I mean, at one time, Jeff, Frankfurter was choosing law clerks for Holmes, Brandeis, Cardozo, Augustus Hand, Learned Hand, and, and at least one or two other judges, Right. I mean, and when you, you say selecting, part, and when you say selecting, what do you mean? Carte blanche power. The judges, there was no interview. Um, whoever Frankfurter selected, the judge picked. Right. But if you think about that, that's how he was able to create this network. Right. Yeah. That's where he's able to send someone like Alex. I mean, I, he's able to send just amazing people. He sent Dean Acheson for two years to clerk for Louis Brandeis right? That's amazing, right? He sees potential in people. And then he he basically assigns them a mentor for life, right? In a Holmes or Brandeis or Cardozo, right? Depending on their personality and their worldview, right? Tom Corcoran went to Oliver Wendell Holmes, right? And, you know, just it, it go, I could go on and on and on about all the people um, that he sent to these judges. Joseph Rao, who's a great left-wing activist, went to Cardozo, 
right? So like, you know, this is how he's able to sort of start the network, right? Um, it's just the world's smaller, right? You don't have law professors with that type of power anymore. Right, right. So lessons for now, kind of similarly as we were talking about with his jurisprudence, right? What are what are lessons for now? Is it is the American Constitution Society and Federal Society the lesson? It's like, you know, young law, uh, uh, young law professor, young law students, excuse me, are 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 precious resources, and they should be recruited and directed to do things that are, you know, in alignment with things that a movement thinks are good for that movement or good for the world. Uh, or is it, uh, or is there more, or is there different? I think it's even simpler. We want smart people in government, right? So um, it's just on me as a law professor that what how Felix Frankfurter's inspired me as a law professor is when I see a really talented student, I want to encourage them to do something um, to serve our country, right? You know, wh whether that's go start, maybe it starts with going to work for a federal judge, but then maybe it's going to work um, in the Senate for the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, or on some other um, Senate committee, or maybe it's um, going working in the Justice Department, you know, defending federal laws all over the country, right? In in, a, in some place like government programs or the Civil Appellate Division, right? Just trying to sort of show them opportunities, or going to an agency um, like the FCC, you know, um, where all the telecom stuff is happening, or the FTC. Um, to block mergers that are anti-competitive, right? So I just think like, if you see talented students and you figure out what they're interested in, and then you try to channel them in a direction that isn't just a cog in the machine of some big law firm, and that there, there's all these great experiences to be gained from the government, but also the government can benefit from having a person as smart as you are in it. So- Back to Frankfurter himself, sort of, we yeah. talked about his an establishment builder. We talked to yeah. him about his sort of judicial philosophy. Let's yeah. go even before that, because that's some of what, uh, some of what I think makes your story a good story, right? Is that is it actually tells the story of an interesting human being and is a window to understanding a piece of American history. And it's a piece of American history that Fox News doesn't cite too very much. And everybody else kind of forgotten a little bit. Uh, which was which was a time when, let, let me say this, a little bit of an aside. I remember when COVID funding was distributed and it even woke me up a little bit because our entire life, basically, and, and as a lawmaker for myself, as a voter, uh, most of my life has been about constrained government power, about the, the reduction in the ability or the, or the low level of faith in the ability of government to solve problems. And as a as somebody who used to have to pass budgets or vote on budgets, it was all there was always a well, we're not gonna be able to afford this because we got a budget, we got a budget constraint. We're gonna have to cut this, we're gonna have to cut that. This has been the reality since the since the Carter era, right? Since since Ronald Reagan was president. And all of a sudden, and this was under Donald Trump, you had you had COVID and you have this huge unleashing of of federal resource that props up the American economy, keeps us from going into a depression, right? Continues even to this day with, with every nattering nabob saying, well, we're gonna have a recession, you know, two years ago. Well, it hasn't quite happened yet. That that and it even reminded me, oh, wait a minute, government can still do stuff, right? You have the affordable uh, affordable connectivity program that is getting uh low-income people access to nearly free telecommunications so that they can access that. Oh wait, government can still do this stuff. In his life, 
even before being on the Supreme Court, was sort of the early days of, wait, the this isn't Bill Clinton saying the era of big government is over. This is the era of saying, wait a minute, we have a collective thing here that can solve problems. If we do stuff, we can maybe solve some problems together. And so I find your story interesting as a window into that. But why don't you tell some of that story? What were some of the things in your research that either reminded you of stuff you always thought was important or like woke you up or or or, or gave you perspective on something that was important you hadn't even noticed before? Yeah, I mean, first, Jeff, like I think he had a tremendous amount of faith in state governments to solve problems, you know, and I think the Democrats, you know, as my friend David Pepper talks about Ohio all the time, he'd be a great guest for you, by the way. You have He's been on Ohio. Uh, Ohio chair that he was on. Yeah. David Pe- uh, yeah, David-, David Pepper, also a friend. So David Pepper was on the city council in Cincinnati. Uh, and I met him when I was living in, uh, actually living at John Cranley's parents' house when John Cranley was a law school classmate of mine, was running then for Congress lost, ended up becoming eventually mayor of Cincinnati. Uh, and, and I met David Pepper and liked him very much. And, and well, like, we were, like you we were, and like David Pepper and like John yeah. Cranley, like Frankfurter believed in state and local governments. And, and, you know, he believed that the states, he, they were kind of locked out of the presidency for a long time and didn't really have um, the kind of White House that they wanted that was going to pass pro-labor legislation. He was kind of lukewarm on Wilson. And and so when Brandeis joins the courts, he hands off his cases, his Supreme Court cases to Frankfurter. And I think you know this history, Jeff. It's Frankfurter defending the state of Oregon's minimum wage and maximum hour laws, right? Bunting versus Oregon is Frankfurter arguing before the Supreme Court in 1916 and 1917. And then six years later, right? He's defending a D.C. minimum wage law for minimum women and children. It's a case called Atkins versus Children's Hospital. Frankfurter thinks he slayed Lochner in Bunting versus Oregon, right? That that Lochner's been what lawyers would call as sub silentio overruled, right? In kind of a velvet hammer fashion that Lochner was dead. Well, in Atkins versus Children's Hospital, Frankfurter loses six to two, and the court strikes down the D.C. minimum wage law and says... Um, that liberty of contract is the is the rule and the constitutionality of state laws is the exception, right? And, and Frankfurter says, I'm done, right? He says, I'm done, arguing before the Supreme Court of the United States. He becomes one of the Supreme Court's biggest critics. And it, But instead of just getting discouraged, he's writing articles, attacking the court in the New Republic, but he throws himself into federal electoral politics. And, and you know, he... he backs Robert LaFollette in the 24 campaign. LaFollette loses. Walter Lippmann's like, you threw your vote away. And he said, Walter, um, my focus is on 1944, not 1924. He backs Al Smith, the first Catholic candidate of a major political party in 28. Smith gets destroyed by um, by Herbert Hoover. Walter Lippmann, who I hate, by the way, he's a terrible person, that says to Frank, for the Democratic Party's over, right? I'm done. And Frankfurter says, no, 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 the Democratic Party is going to be the liberal party in this country, right? There were liberals and conservatives in both parties at the time. He says, and the leader of the Democratic Party is going to be the newly elected governor of New York, Franklin Roosevelt, who won Smith's home state when Al Smith, the former governor of New York, lost it, right, in, in, 20, in 28. And, and so Frankfurter becomes Roosevelt's advisor as governor. And that's when Frankfurter sees, the, oh, yeah, state governments, when they have someone like Franklin Roosevelt, even during the Great Depression, um, can do great things um, with regard to workers' rights, criminal justice reform, um, 
you know, hydroelectric power, right? These were all the types of issues Frankfurter was advising Governor Roosevelt on, and that just continued when Roosevelt became president. The only problem with my story, Jeff, is that Frankfurter didn't stop advising Roosevelt once he became joined the Supreme Court of the United States, and he was crossing ethical lines like crazy um, in ways that he shouldn't have, and he should have never been sitting on. He basically installed the Secretary of War before Pearl Harbor, um, Henry Stimson, his longtime mentor, and then kept voting on all these War Department cases like Korematsu, um, like Ex parte Kieran about Nazi, Nazi saboteurs. He should have never been sitting on Japanese internment and, and Nazi saboteurs cases. He was advising the War Department at the same time he was sitting on the cases. It was insane. Today, he'd be impeached in a hot second. So, you know, that's the only that's the bad part of the story. But like I told it and I criticized him for it. It was crazy. Yeah. And one of the things that makes your story compelling, because it also gives you a window on how government was working in those days. Right. And in part, it's even it's even related to the thing you were saying before. It was kind of a smaller world. Picking up the phone and calling somebody to make something happen. That was that's kind of stuff that happened. In fact, Frankfurter helped build the momentum for a structure of processes where that kind of thing wasn't the way to do it anymore. Right. Right. And and even what we're seeing now with a rise in oligarchic power is sort of, oh, yeah, if you if you avoid government structures, if you ju- if you avoid public structures, if you just do things based on handshakes and wealth and then Donald Trump is your president, Elon Musk is your high priest, then, you know, then, yeah, you, you can avoid things like due process, et cetera. If we were clickbait artists, which either means if I were doing a different job or maybe if I were better at my job, I'm we might highlight this. We might headline this as uh the most dangerous man in America, because according to you, and not just you, but J. Edgar Hoover called Felix Frankfurt apparently the most dangerous man in America. And I just think it's fascinating. And may, you know, maybe that should be maybe that should be our title for this episode. Why did J. Edgar Hoover name Frankfurt or that? And how did Frankfurt? And this was before he was a Supreme Court justice, I think. So yeah, how did right. he end up a Supreme Court justice if the head of the FBI thought he was really dangerous? It's unbelievable that you highlighted that. So um, after the Palmer raids, which is after World War I, um, Woodrow Wilson's attorney general, A. Mitchell Palmer, said, I'm going to round up all the radicals and anarchists in this country. I don't care if I violate their due process rights. I don't care if we violate their Fourth Fourth Amendment rights to illegal search and seizure. I'm just going to lock them up and deport them all. And Frankfurter um, was asked um, by a federal judge and, and, and the architect of those Palmer raids was a young Justice Department official named J. Edgar Hoover. So those raids were largely carried out by Hoover. And Frankfurter and another Harvard Law professor, Zachariah Chafee, who became a huge First Amendment advocate, um, were um, asked by a federal judge in Boston to represent about 23 radicals, immigrants, who were rounded up and scheduled for deportation in federal court. And they basically investigated the you-know-what out of the way the Palmer raids were conducted and found all sorts of unconstitutional conduct. And there was a big report that a bunch of people signed on to accusing the Attorney General and J. Edgar Hoover of violating the U.S. Constitution. Um, and, And Palmer called them liars and challenged them to a debate and and. Chafee and Frankfurter said, I'll see you under oath before the U.S. Congress. Of course, Palmer didn't show. Um, and then J. Edgar Hoover began opening up a secret file on Frankfurter in 1920 um, after all this stuff came out. But it gets worse. Four years later, 
after the Harding administration, there's a ton of corruption in the Justice Department. Harlan Fiststone has made Calvin Coolidge's attorney general. And, and Harlan Fiststone's job is to clean house in the Justice Department. Frankfurter sends Stone a letter and says, here are all the people you need to fire from the Justice Department. And Stone takes every single recommendation except one. He keeps this guy on who's the head of the Bureau of Investigation, and his name is J. Edgar Hoover. And Frankfurter says, what are you doing keeping J. Edgar Hoover in this position of power? And, and Stone's like, he will do all the liberal things I want him to do. And Frankfurter says, what about when you're no longer attorney general? Then what happens with J. Edgar Hoover? And that's how Frankfurter essentially created a liberal, I mean, an enemy for life um, in Hoover. He hated J. Edgar Hoover. And it goes all the way through, right? Wow. Even though they reached a kind of detente publicly, right? Frankfurter always used to say, oh, so-and-so is just a stooge of J. Edgar Hoover. He couldn't stand him. And so, so how did he, he get knew. through? How did he get approved? How did he get confirmed with Jager Hoover as enemy? It just maybe just limit to Jager Hoover's power. Yeah, I think I don't think Hoover could stop take on Roosevelt on yeah. this. And and but really, it's funny you ask. Frankfurter's the first nominee who's ever compelled to testify before the Supreme Court of the United States in order to get confirmed. And there's an anti-immigrant, anti-communist. Um, they, Pat McCarran from Nevada. He's like Joe McCarthy before Joe McCarthy. And he grills Frankfurter. And there's all these crazy people who testify accusing Frankfurter of being a communist when he's anything but, um, you know, by the mere fact that he's a Jew who's influential in the Roosevelt administration. So, I mean, he got through, by the way, Jeff, they didn't have a roll call vote when Frankfurter got confirmed. It was a voice vote. It's one of the last times um, they just they said all in favor say aye and all in favor say no. And they recorded no votes um, when he got confirmed because people didn't want to go on the record for or against. That's how he got confirmed. Interesting. All right. So a little bit more on as we went to sort of the history. So his uh as we think about the development of American law and kind of the strains. Those are strains of human uh, of, of ideas and are taught as strains mostly of ideas and the laws. Uh, we now know more than ever that they are also strains of applications of power, be they lagging indicators or otherwise, right? It's not just like which I, the best idea wins. It's who is in the position of power because they build the establishment, build the organization, build the network, et cetera. They get elected. They appoint the people that are able to make the decision, whatever. Okay. Uh, and then there are also the strains of human beings, right? The the unbroken chain, the person who hands off the baton of an idea, or the person who doesn't even hand it off, but somebody goes and you know picks their book off the shelf and says, "I want to do it like this person." And uh, and and Frankfurter had uh, Frankfurter had an idol, and that was Oliver Wendell Holmes, as I understand it. Uh, in what ways was Oliver Wendell Holmes an idol, and in what ways was that helpful or maybe problematic? Yeah, I mean. I I think idols strong, like, so, so, you know, to me, it's Roosevelt, right? So I think when he was, when Frankfurter was young, he was captivated by Holmes, because Holmes was someone you would want to have a beer with. He could talk about any subject, he could disagree with you without being disagreeable, but he was open to young people's ideas. So when Frankfurter was a young person who came to Washington, um, and, and he's able, because DC is so small in 1912, 
to have Oliver Wendell Holmes over for dinner. Um, he's the guy and not Brandeis, even though they have Brandeis over for dinner and Brandeis is the progressive and Holmes is kind of the skeptic, right? And, you know, they love Holmes, right? Even though they agree with Brandeis. And don't forget, Jeff, we talked about Lochner before, you know, Holmes, I mean, Frankfurter revealed, revered Holmes as Lochner dissent, which basically accused the conservative justice of the Supreme Court of reading their oligarchic economic ideas um, into the Constitution, right? So he's already a hero from way back in 1905. And then you find out your hero is a great guy and a great conversationalist who's open to your ideas, right, and willing to uphold all of your pro-labor legislation, not because he agrees with it, but because he doesn't think the justices should interfere, right? And then he happens to be the best writer um, in the court's history. Maybe him and Robert Jackson are the best writers ever on the court, right? So it's a mix of things, but it's also just a close affinity. He was so close to Holmes on a personal level, but in terms of elected officials, it's FDR, 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 right? Um, Frankfurter saw FDR as the greatest American president besides Abraham Lincoln. And he he knew that as early as 33 or 34. He saw in FDR the ability to be one of the greatest presidents in our history and to invest. And FDR was willing to listen to experts, right? And to have an expert-run government, right? And to trust people um, with subject matter expertise. And, and Frankfurter really admired that. He knew that FDR wasn't a genius the way that Holmes was a genius in the way he could write, but he saw that FDR could be a highly effective president. And he was. Something I hadn't caught until I, we were doing prep. They're born in the same year. Wow, 1883, right? 1882. 1882. So, so FDR right. at the very beginning, January of 1882, Frankfurt, the very end of November. Yeah, November fifteenth, eighteen eighty-two. You're totally so they're contem- right. So they're, so they're contemporaries, and I hadn't I hadn't thought about that before. I didn't, uh, all these people seem ageless to me, right? So they're all they're all just the picture. They of course, of there course Jeff, they cross paths in World War One, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, FDR's assistant secretary of the Navy under Wilson. Um, Frankfurter's the chair of something called the War Labor Policies Board that's trying to standardize employment practices throughout the federal government and federal industry you know, in war-related industries, you know, with maximum hours and minimum wage laws and those kind of things. And and FDR is on that, a representative on that War Labor Policy Board. He brings Frankfurter home for lunch one day. And Eleanor, you know, this is, of course, like 1917 or 1918. Um, she writes in a letter to her mother-in-law, an interesting little man, but very Jew. That's what she writes about him. And, and so like, you know, she he ends up becoming great friends with both Eleanor and Franklin and and stays at the White House on the regular in the 30s before he joins the court. Um, but, you know, they will go way back. Right. Is my point. Right. They'd been through all of the big battles um, against, um, you know, big business, you know, going back into the teens. So he, he knew um, he saw the greatness in FDR, particularly when he became governor of New York. What was his view? And and I and I think about this and the attack on from from even pre-Nixon, but certainly Nixon, and then maybe more popularized and and uh more of as a as a battle cry in the 80s and after was sort of the liberal elite. But 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 this is kind of what we're talking about, right? A group of people who weren't the economic elite, weren't the most powerful people, but then worked 
uh, in part, FDR was born rich, but a lot of these guys weren't born rich, but worked hard to figure out how can we solve problems publicly. And then they get derided and marginalized and say, oh, no, these are, this is a liberal elite. And this is why poor people, uh, some of you all ought to be voting for oligarchic politics, because these people are actually in power. And I sort of think about the liberal elite every time we hear about, about the relationships between, as you sort of at Harvard, they say, okay, we're here, we're at this fancy school, let's, let's go get some people, some other smart people to go do some stuff that's good for people. And they get derided for the liberal elite. And I just find it interesting. Uh, Brandeis, what was his view towards Brandeis? Frankly. He loved him, like he eulogized him, right? It was the, the people who eulogized Frankfurter at his funeral were um, were Felix Frankfurter and Dean Acheson were the two people at you know eulogizing him, but they had a complicated relationship. Who eulogized Brandeis? It, 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 yeah, it yeah, they both they were they were the ones eulogizing Brandeis at his funeral. I think it was in 1943, but it may be 41. I can't remember on my dates. Um, but but Frankfurter's relationship with Brandeis was a little complicated. They were both progressive in the sense they were pro-labor, they were anti-big business, they had some different views economically. What complicated their relationship is Brandeis was a multimillionaire. He'd been a um, big-time lawyer in Boston. Um, he had all these pro bono things he wanted done, and he was paying Frankfurter to do them. And those payments um, lasted while Brandeis was on the court and, and wow. Frankfurter was a private lawyer. Where they broke Jeff and almost stopped being friends was over court packing because Brandeis was furious with FDR's efforts to try to increase the number of justices on the court. And Frankfurter had pledged to FDR to remain neutral during court packing. And, and, and he was also mad at Brandeis for signing a letter of Senator Wheeler's that effectively killed the court packing plan. So they were really mad at each other. And, and they, they needed a, a third party, another federal judge they were friends with, a guy named Julian Mack, had to basically act as an intermediary so they could stay friends after court packing. And, and you know, part of me thinks, you know, Brandeis retired a week after Frankfurter got on the bench because he was mad there were liberals in the New Deal like Tom Corcoran and Ben Cohen who were asked trying to push Brandeis to retire, right? Kind of like liberals were pushing, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer to retire, to make way for Frankfurter and Brandeis wouldn't do it. And so he, he refused to get off so Frankfurter could get on the court. And so, you know, I think their relationship was a little strained post-1937. They were still really close, um, but, 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 you know, the, the wars that they'd been through together about minimum wage laws and maximum hour laws, um, you know, that, that kind of stopped. I think Brandeis thought um, Frankfurter was too close to FDR and, and, and too loyal to FDR. And that's true. I think Brandeis was right. But I think Frankfurter's also right that Brandeis shouldn't have weighed in on the court packing plan. The focus, because the focus of the book, of this portion of the discussion, obviously, has been on Felix Frankfurter. But when we do these discussions, we're also... I'm sort of interested in the author, right? And uh, I imagine you writing this, coming in with certain like motivations for why you wanted to, things you already knew, hypotheses you were testing. And so I am interested if there's anything that surprised you, but I'm also interested in the impact this process had on you, how you think about your role as a law professor, as you think about your law students' roles in the world and how they might approach the world, as, as you think about you know, if, if you've got if you've got another, you know, 30 to 50 years of of productive activity, how does it impact your thinking about how you want to be you? 
Yeah, I mean, Jeff, I went to a different law school than you did, and 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 the law school I went to put the Warren Court on a pedestal. And some of my most brilliant professors, you know, had clerked on the Warren Court and, and just you know, you know, told you stories about Justice Brennan and Justice Marshall and Justice Harlan and, and all the great um, Warren Court justices. And and I, so I just had this kind of the court on the on a pedestal from law school, and then Bush v. Gore happened, Jeff, you know, in 2000, and they, they, when they short-circuited Florida's recount um, in the 2000 presidential election, and my kind of worldview of the Supreme Court um, was shattered, and I, I had to start rethinking what I wanted the role of the Supreme Court to be in our democracy, and so I think this book really helped me rethink the role of the Supreme Court in our democracy, and I, it helped me realize that the Warren Court did some wonderful things like Brown versus Board of Education, um, like, you know, just fighting for racial justice when um, before 1964, no other branches of government were really fighting for it, right? And I give the Warren Court a ton of credit for that, but they also did a lot of really bad things, um, like, you know, this idea of judicial supremacy, this idea of the Supreme Court as the is the ultimate constitutional interpreter. I see that as a negative legacy of the Warren Court. So I see the, the Warren Court's legacy now as a result of this book as kind of a mixed bag. You know, the racial justice stuff was great, right? Creating a kind of all-powerful Supreme Court was not so great, right? So um, I think that's what the book really taught me. And it's changed the way I teach constitutional law to my students. You know, it's kind of less court-centric, you know, it's, it, it, and I, I have, do try to, um, show my students that the other branches of government play a co-equal role um, in interpreting the constitution and, and are equally powerful and that we should be using that power um, under our constitutional system. So, so that's what I think the book taught me. And I think Frankfurter had a faith in democracy in our institutions, institutions other than the Supreme Court of the United States. And, and it, that really helped me um, try to, it restored my faith in those institutions. And then just the way that he mentored his law students and his law clerks wanted me, made, tried to make me a better mentor um, to my students at Georgetown and help them show them that there's a different path um, than just spending, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 years um, at a big corporate law firm and that there are more important things in life than just making a lot of money. And then one of the greatest things you can possibly do um, is serve your country in, in, a, in the federal or state government. Wonderful. Uh, to amplify and maybe add one thing, the faith in democracy, the commitment to building institutions, to building public structures. Something else you said earlier was uh, that the Democrat, big D democratic power was maybe tactical, but not strategic. What occurred to me from this conversation, something I've learned in this conversation, was even this idea of judicial restraint. Like during our formative years, that was a rhetorical cudgel used to go after Roe versus Wade, used to go used to go after uh, what they would call liberal uh, judicial overreach. So when you and I were being raised, that argument seemed like a Republican argument. That argument seemed like an argument. That, it was like saying states' rights. 
you know, it, 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 you can say states' rights, and what you actually mean is, yeah, let's make sure you can do feed-in tariffs so that local people actually have a, fact, a chance to make money if they put a solar panel on their house, panel on their house, rather than just deferring it all to some private electricity company. You can have states' rights and local rights, et cetera, that don't just mean uh, or, or mean precisely different than be racist, but uh, but this idea of judicial restraint. I mean, it it, it, it was it it seemed like a dog whistle for bad stuff. And so what this has helped me do is realize, oh, wait a minute, very often we can confuse the argument for a principle, that the, that the rhetorical flourish, the persuasive point in order to build power, in order to undercut uh, the liberal thing, in order to build the fundament that becomes Fox News, et cetera, that we say uh, you know, judicial restraint, judicial restraint, but that argument is different than the principle. And, and, and from you, it's like, there's actually a real good point to just restraint. There's a real good point to a humble Supreme Court. There's a, like that, that the Warren Court was an anomalous. The Warren Court right. was an outlier in the right. story of the Supreme Court. And so, yes, most Yale law professors like grew up with that legend. And so they teach that legend, like, wait a minute, let's not be gnats where we're born in winter and we think the whole world has been cold. That, that's in fact, understand the onward sweep of history, which one another reason why I really appreciate your book as a window of history or, or using history as a window to understand what we're up against now. Well, I really appreciate that. What's really gratifying to me is to see all these really bright young law professors, younger than I am and younger than you are, who are really developing this, this history of judicial restraint. You've got Daphna Reynan and, and Nico Bowie at Harvard Law School writing a book about um, Supreme Court overreach during the 19th century and are, are, are really in favor of judicial restraint. You've got Ryan Dorfler at Harvard Law School um, who believe in judicial restraint um, as a liberal constitutional idea. You've got Sam Moyne at Yale, same thing, you know, writing about James Bradley Thayer of Harvard Law School who had it right all, all along, right, about judicial restraint. And so um, it's interesting to me that the next generation of constitutional thinkers is viewing the Warren Court just the way you described it as a fluke, as an aberration. And by taking a longer view of, of our history, um, you can see the kind of conservative or even reactionary role the court has played in our history and that we need to look to other institutions to solve our problems. That's was Frankfurter's lesson all along. We just forgot about it because um, you know we were winning Supreme Court cases. And as I think about it, it should have occurred to me a bit ago. But what we, what most, almost anybody would want is restraint by the people we disagree with, <laughs> and, and activism with what we agree with. But your point is that if you build institutional constraint, if you build institutional restraint, then then you can sort of right size the power of that institution. It could be more appropriate if it is in fact a lagging indicator. It could be more appropriate and and fulfill its constitutional role more appropriately. Right, and I I just think also Democrats need to invest in other institutions, right? And 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 just as hard as they sometimes, you know, gnash their teeth about Supreme Court opinions, that they should be, you know, lobbying their representatives, both in um, Congress and, and at the White House and at their state houses, right? And so I just think, you know, we need to invest in our institutions. And I think that's what Frankfurter did, was he invested in state governments and state legislation, and he invested you know, his mind, body, and soul in federal legislation and, and federal government and, and and didn't wait for the Supreme Court to come around um, to his ideas. Well, Brad Snyder, law professor, Georgetown University, author of the book, Democratic Justice, 
Felix Frankfurt of the Supreme Court and the making of the liberal establishment. This has been a treat for me, man. It's been so great to catch up. I'm glad we've had a chance to do this, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Likewise, I forgot how great you are and how smart you are and charismatic you are. And 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 it just like brings back a lot of great memories. And I hope this isn't the last time we talk. All right, man. Be well. All right. Take care. Cheers. Democracy Nerds recorded in sunny Portland, Oregon, produced by Kyle Curtis. Thanks also to technical producer Sig Seliger. Logo designed by Kat Buckley at kbuckleygraphics.com. I am Jefferson Smith. Thank you so much for listening. You can rate and review. Hope you will. And follow Democracy Nerd on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Past episodes of the show, Democracy Nerd, can be found online at democracynerd.us. Go America. Thank you. Thank you, Democracy